Welcome to The Brave Table. I'm your host, Dr. Neetha Bhushan, and this is your oasis for strengthening your mental and emotional fitness, no matter what life tosses your way. I am so excited you're here. Just like you, I wear many hats. I'm a former dentist turned author and serial entrepreneur, currently a mom of two, and a recovering perfectionist. Every week, we'll navigate brave conversations to support your evolution at every season and stage of your life. Raw and unfiltered, we'll explore all the feels as we unpack life's unpredictable moments, from the playful to the painful, the magical and the messy, and everything in between this epic human experience. You ready? Let's dive in. Welcome to episode 100. I cannot believe it as I am recording this. Wow, I just have to take a breath. And if you are new, welcome to your destination, your oasis, and all things being just a little bit more brave in your actions, your conversations, and your relationships. Wow, loves, I cannot believe we've made it to 100. And for those of you who have been with us for this exciting ride, Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for pouring in and investing in your heart, in your expansion, in your evolution, into being more brave. And for those of you who have just arrived, this has been such a labor of love. And I am so, so excited to round out our 100th episode with someone I think you are just going to be completely blown away by. And I know that there has been so much emotion in the air, whether it's winding down because it's end of the year, but I want to talk about this idea of being unconventional. And I know many of you have been so gracious and just committing yourself to being an avid listener and sending us DMs and even writing a review and making it a five-star review. And if you haven't, you definitely can do so. And I'm just so touched by all of the DMs that have come in throughout the course of some of the tough conversations and tough things that you've all shared. And today we're talking about dismantling the idea of unconventional and how your greatest obstacles can guide you to your dream life. Now, this queen, I could not think of a better guest to wrap up this beautiful, beautiful year with. She's a boss babe filmmaker and a true warrior woman, the one and only Adrusha Apana. She has been through her fair share of sucky life moments, and she is a magnificent storyteller. I mean, from serious injuries to diagnoses that doctors had her telling her that she'd never be the same again, and she's risen time and time over again. A little bit about Adrusha. She's a filmmaker and founder of the production company Curiosity Entertainment, and she's the GP of Curiosity Media Finance. Curiosity is home to the next production from famed television creator Mark Williams from Ozark and Funny Girl, written by Anthony McCartan, Theory of Everything, and Bohemian Rhapsody, to be directed by Nisha Ganatra who's from High Note and Late Night. Her creative slate for curiosity includes projects in conjunction with Anise Brothers, who is from the Umbrella Academy, Kevin Fox from Law & Order SVU and Raising Canaan, and a co-production with Alcon Entertainment and Nazarene Chowdhury 
Fear of the Walking Dead. I mean, this stellar, stellar list, if that isn't enough, her releases have included Emmy-nominated The Survivor, starring Ben Foster, directed by Barry Levinson, Capone, starring Tom Hardy, and Needle in a Time Stack, starring Cynthia Ervo, Leslie Odom Jr., Orlando Bloom. I mean, you know some of these incredible, incredible humans that have been on the big screen, and Frida Pinto, directed by John Ridley, which she executive produced. Adrusha has worked as a TV and executive film, supporting over 30 film and television shows. Now, in this episode, it gets so juicy because we have this Emmy-nominated, award-winning producer, filmmaker, director, and we talk about why we need to stop using the term unconventional to describe our life path, and how do you find your own measures of success, and when major setbacks actually end up being your biggest blessings, and so much more. Now, loves, let us welcome the one and only, the remarkable, and so fascinating, and we just had so much fun in this conversation, and I obviously learned so much And I know that this is going to bring so much incredible value to you that you'll want to share this with a friend, a family member, and bring it to your own Brave Table. Let's welcome Adrusha Apana on the Brave Table. Oh, wow. Welcome to the Brave Table, love. I'm so excited that we're doing this. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, loves. So for context for our audience, like I've been watching you for a very long time and I feel like you give me inspiration. Oh, thank you. As a creator, as a brown woman, and as somebody that has, you know, I feel like I've gone unconventional, but you have really gone unconventional. So I would love our audience to really hear and unpack kind of your trajectory into being who you are today. Sure. I am a filmmaker and an artist. I own my own production company and it's called Curiosity Entertainment. And I make film and TV. I also write music. I and my company develop, create, produce. Then we have a sister company that finances when it's appropriate, independent film and television and yeah, I'm just I'm just a storyteller. So I guess my journey to my unconventional path begins with this idea of us stopping using this word unconventional path. Mm. There was a lot I had to unpack to find the freedom to do exactly what my five-year-old self knew I wanted to do the whole time. And a lot of that came from things that were taught to me along the way by loving people, my parents, my teachers, society, about what is possible and what is not possible. Mm. And I think that in this day and age, it's really time for us as a society to stop using these labels Mm -hmm. and start unpacking these ideas around what is traditional, what is non-traditional, And what career paths are safe or not safe because the truth of the matter is, and you know this better than anyone, we create our own path. Mm. We create our own safety. Mm -hmm. It's all part of what's in our head and our fears around it. And I wish I had known that earlier. I probably would have got here more quickly, but 
I kind of want to even let's like double click into that. What was five-year-old Adrusha? What was she wanting to do versus what kind of the environment was? I mean, my five-year-old self used to have conversations with posters on the wall of different movie stars and actors. And she knew that she was going to be, you know, working with them. I would stay up to practice my award speech every night or every year Um, around the awards time. I would tell my parents I have to stay up because it's my homework. I think having grown up between India and America when I was little and having family that was kind of all around the world in Australia in France, my parents' friends were Korean, Japanese, mm. and Chinese. I got exposed and was lucky to be exposed at a very young age to what the rest of the world lived like and what life was like and realities were like for the rest of the world. And for 70% of the world's population, they're living below the poverty line. Mm-hmm. And I think as a little kid, when you grow up in places in America that are very safe, like the Midwest. I grew up in Seattle before that. Mm -hmm. And then you're taken to another world, which from my very young age, I was going and spending time in India. I've gone to school there twice. You start realizing and trying to comprehend what those vast differences are. So I was working in Sisters of Charity, Mother Teresa's Orphanage when I was a kid um, with kids who were just like me. And when you ask them what they wanted to be, Mm. they wanted to be lawyers and doctors and engineers, but they were sleeping in huts on the floor with nothing to their name. And as a child, I would go and I'd play with them. And I think the one thing that we had in common was the music we listened to and the stories we had read and the film and television that they had snuck in and watched on their TV shows. And so it became very apparent to me at a young age that that was, for me, a love language. Mm. It was a way for me to cross over those socioeconomic and cultural divides and really relate to a kid halfway around the world who may not have the same reality or opportunity as me, but would streaming just as big because of these stories. Yeah, And so unbeknownst to me, the arts became my love language. And I spent my childhood acting and singing and dancing, really, because it was the only place where I felt like I could be and understand the totality of all those worlds. I was very shy when I was like in school and running around because I was having, I think, a a really hard time comprehending how the world could be so vast and our differences could be so much. And I'm supposed to just go back to my life and right. act like everything's the same. Mm-hmm. So I think that it was just this hunger for mm-hmm. understanding then all types of different people's backgrounds, careers, sure. choices, circumstances. And the only space that I could see really a chance to explore everything was in writing and acting and directing and singing and performing because you could be all these different characters and really learn how to relate. Yeah. And when did that then really take shape and kind of be a reality for you? Because I'm assuming that, you know, at the age of five, you're spending a lot of time in and out of India where how many like months or years at a time were you in India? and then We would spend a whole six months, either the 
entire winter or the entire summer when we went, when we were younger, because my parents didn't have a lot of expendable cash. So taking us there was, was a big deal. So we would spend a decent amount of time, not just there, but other places in the world, visiting their family, friends. And I'm the oldest of three girls. So my goodness, it was for me, I spent a lot of time, you know, alone in those places, exploring and becoming friends with all these kids from all around the world and really seeing that their dreams were the same as mine. Wow. And then when did that kind of take shape in reality? Or were you always kind of then performing and singing and dancing throughout your... When it finally started taking shape for me was actually many, many years later. I think that when I was young, I went really hard at the arts. I was acting, I was singing, I was dancing all the way to when I was 15. I broke my knee in an accident and I was told I wouldn't walk again without limping. It was a dance accident. Oh my gosh. And I had wanted to be a musical theater major before that. And so very quickly, my reality was changed. I was told that this wasn't going to be a reality for me anymore. And I had to do about eight hours of therapy a day to be able to get back to running and walking. Wow, just as a 15-year-old. Uh-huh, as a 15-year-old. And it was my first time. I was actually like a really soft kid until then. Mm. And I didn't know what pain was. I didn't know what persevering was. I was in all kinds of sports, but I had never really like worked hard for something. And when I broke my knee when I was 15, this is the first time when I had to kind of face some of my largest fears and really use my mind to get to a place where I would understand A, how to pivot Mm. and B, to overcome something that was that physically debilitating. So after I was done recovering, I did go back to dance and I was acting and singing in all our plays and stuff. And And I want to stop you. So you actually were able to heal that injury. Yeah. I spent, again, six to eight hours. I took a pass-fail for my freshman year of high school and they just put me into intense therapy. And my mom is a Reiki healer. She did a lot of Reiki on me. And Your mom was a Reiki healer mm-hmm. even back then in the day. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you've been exposed to wellness yeah, and non-traditional ways of healing. Yeah. I'm going to tell you probably over the course of this podcast, I've had three now times in my life where I've been given the equivalent of either a diagnosis or a stop sign where someone has said like, oh, there's no way you're coming back from this. Um, Or this is something we don't understand. Or you're going to have to start all over again. And each time I ended up losing some of my fear around success and these societal ideas of success that were given to me. And it was in going through those that I actually finally found my freedom and ended up being able to chase and pursue what I really wanted and live the life that I really wanted. Um, And the first is this knee break. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I brushed and relent my college applications. I had no idea what I wanted to do after that because I was still living in the Midwest. And in the Midwest, I now know as an adult, a lot of our plays were typecasts. Like we literally did Fiddler in the Roof and the second daughter was a white redhead. Like it was... What what part did you play? So I always would get these, the dance understudy. So it was like the understudy to one of the leads. And I thought that it was because I wasn't good enough. Retrospectively, I think a lot of politics played a part, but without knowing that and growing up in the Midwest, you know, my parents were always and still to this day are very supportive of what 
we they always taught us we could do anything mm. um, and exposed us very early on to a lot of the ways that you and I live our life now so that there was this understanding that there was something more. Wow, to have that support. Oh, yeah. So they, so you weren't getting like, have to be a doctor, dentist, lawyer, engineer. Well, it's funny because our parents and our loved ones and our, and, and our teachers, you know, they're all just doing the best they can too. Mm-hmm. So they always instilled in us this idea that you can do anything you'd like, but they too were products of society. I'm a first-generation American. They were immigrants. They gave up a lot of comforts in India and came here and started over and made their way all the way back up society. They went to IAT. For those of you guys who don't know, it's like a very Mm -hmm. renowned engineering college out in India, and they were top of their class, and, you know, they were the ones who, like, made it. So they always said you can do anything you want, but they also, you know, were very fearful, as was inset in them for their children in a new society. And it was, you know, have a backup plan, make sure that you also get the career, make sure you can also stand on your your own two feet. So it was kind of a dual message, which actually was quite confusing as Mm -hmm. a child, but they were doing their best to try to protect us. So anyway, I ended up in business school because they paid me more money to go to business school. Mm. They paid me full scholarship. They gave me money in my pocket every quarter. Oh, wow. I went to something called the Honors Plus Business School. It's a program that's funded by the Carl H. Lindner, who he owns UDF and Chiquita and a bunch of different companies like A.C. Nielsen and Procter & Gamble Mm -hmm. and Chiquita. Yep. And 25 kids, full scholarship. They sent us around the world to learn with the best companies. And everyone who I went to that program with were valedictorian saladed. So at 18, I was put in a very competitive environment. Sure. And at the end of the first year, you know, I had an internship that was coveted. I had done really well. I was involved in all the different organizations. I was thriving. You were living your best life. I was thriving. Career-wise. As a business student. And the problem with an 18-year-old winning is that once you're winning, (laughs) it's very hard to remind yourself why you started. Mm -hmm. So I ended up doing four years of a five-year program. The fifth year, I took all my credit hours in one quarter and got out of there because I woke up in the fifth year of this program. It was a five-year program. And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Mm. This has nothing to do with anything I wanted to do in life. Oh, wow. What were the moments that preceded that, like, what I like to call this kind of, like, falling? And, you know, there's a framework that I talk about in my book. It's, how to, like, the fly-forward method. But the first stage is that falling, when you have this realization or this wake-up call or this initiation of, like, oh, shit. Yeah. I think I was just in my final year or about to start my final year, my fifth year of school. And I like had this feeling that I was losing time. Mm. I'd gone, I'd worked at Saatchi and Saatchi first as an intern, then as a first year co-op right while I was still in college. I'd been living in New York. I had done the things and I still had this burning desire to tell stories And I had picked Saatchi because it was storytelling for brands. Uh And so I had thought that it was going to be close enough to what my previous dream had been Mm -hmm. that it would satiate me. And when I got to Saatchi, I learned one of the most important lessons that sticks to me in business today as a creative. And that was I was on the advertising side 
of strategic planning and account management for the campaigns wow. for major brands like Tylenol and Reynolds Foil and Play Yogurt and General Mills. Oh, wow. And what I was learning in my first two years there was that even though we would come up with these great creative ideas and all these beautiful like ideation of the future of a brand with the teams I was on, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we would sit in a meeting with the heads of that brand who were a job I could have opted into. Yeah back home in Cincinnati. And then they would tell us, oh, those are really nice ideas. And here's what we're going to do. Mm. And the difference was they were the money. Yep. And so one of my aha moments early in my career as an artist was experiencing this type of environment and realizing that even though I was now the artist in this ecosystem, advertising, I had no creative control. Mm-hmm. They had all the money. And that's something that would stick with me and would define my career later on. Wow. So yeah, I would say you asked what the moment was. It was just this feeling in my senior year of, oh my God, this is not what I want to do with my life. And then this like feverish, I have to start at least finding out how to get there. So I took all my credit hours. I moved out to LA. and that Just was like f- that. Yeah, just like that. My parents had no idea. They were so confused what to ha- what had just happened. Um, Did they just think you were going on sabbatical or it was just a... No, you know, that last year of college, I helped run sorority recruitment and I took a full 21 credit hours. Oh my gosh. And I, I just killed it all, packed my bag and moved. And... So then you were done with <clears throat> that done college, college time. I was done. I needed to figure out what was next. And I came to LA And I had still been acting and singing all through college, and I had attracted a bunch of managers when I'd done a showcase and won a showcase in New York. So I came out to L.A., and I had a job. I had a management consulting job, Mm. and I was working during the week. And then on the weekends, I would go and meet with all these different agents that were out here. And And um, how was that time for you when you initially moved to this place that you'd imagine when you were young as somebody that knew they wanted to tell stories and be in that light when they were young and you finally get to this place, the magical land? How was that for you and how was the acclimation process? I think I was lucky that when I was younger, I'd spent a lot of time traveling with my parents and had seen a lot of the world. So for me, the idea of moving to another place was not as big of a mental block as many brave, brave kids who like leave home for the first time. I studied film right out of high school in New Zealand. I went wow. and I studied at Auckland University. I thought I wanted to be a like um, a nature filmmaker, like for Discovery Channel. Fascinating. So I was born on Earth Day. Earth Day is my birthday. Aww. So I have this Mother Earth thing. And so I'd gone to New Zealand to study like ecology and got a photojournalism degree and a film degree. It's a beautiful place to study. And then had gone right from that into my business program. So I'd spent... My point is time away from home. I'd gone to school in India twice when I was younger. My mom was there, but still, like, I'd spent time away. So my first was moving to New York prior to even graduating because I ended up with a full-time job prior to graduating. Wow. And then moving to L.A. was, for me, just, like, going to the other side. I think the biggest culture shock is for all artists who come to Hollywood or who are part of the entertainment industry— 
there is this absolute need, I think, to have something that grounds you. And that can be, especially if you're a younger artist, family, and it's a constant dialogue in Hollywood. It could be religion. It could be, you know, a strong management structure around you. But there is this question in entertainment and Hollywood specifically, and in a lot of the circles that you and I run in, in wellness and even in leadership and personal development of like, who are you? Yeah. What value are you bringing to the table? Mm. And for a young artist or for someone, especially me, when I moved back out here, who has not defined that within themselves yet, it's hard. that can be a really scary and hard question and more importantly, can feel very deflating. Mm. And so when I first moved out to LA, New York has this magical quality about it when you're young, where it's kind of like, it doesn't matter who you are. Mm-hmm. It just wants to like pick you up in its energy and you buy a bagel in the morning <laughs> and you got your coffee. And then before you know it, in the afternoon, you're in some boom, boom room. You're yep. like, how did I get here? <laughs> and that's like the New York energy. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that there's less or more opportunity. It just has this feeling of a lot of people going there trying to figure out who they are. Mm -hmm. LA has a very much in Hollywood and the entertainment industry, this feeling of like, okay, what do you have? Show us what you got. Mm -hmm. And so when I moved back out here, I still hadn't defined that. I knew that I didn't want to do what I was doing. I knew that I wanted to tell stories and I needed to take a step closer to it, but how I was going to get there, I still had no idea. Mm -hmm. And so... I would say that was the hardest part of coming to Hollywood. I really hated LA the first time I moved out here Yeah, because of that, because it was constantly this like trying to prove yourself type thing. Right. And like, what does your business card say? Yeah. And so what were your grounding practices and were you able to find a grounding support system as you talk about to really help you then kind of amplify this next stage of life? No, I got lucky once again I'm very big on like the power we give words. And for me, like this is something that would seem very unlucky to many people, but it was lucky in terms of my spiritual and my personal growth. My first year here, I had some nights or days where I couldn't get out of bed. And I thought that maybe I had depression. I graduated cum laude from college a year early. I had never taken an Adderall, never taken any help like at at all through college. I'd never done drugs. I had never even smoked pot really. Like it was not a thing that was like part of the culture growing up in Ohio back then. So I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And I, in desperation, one day had to finish a dissertation paper to go back to Ohio and walk with everybody. Because even though I'd graduated and finished my hours, I still needed to go back a year later and walk with everybody. Graduation ceremony. And so I borrowed for the first time in my life an Adderall from someone. Mm. And I thought I was fixed. And... You know, growing up, there had always been a dialogue, as there is in many households, around testing and test time and how I learn differently through music, through hands-on learning, and I should take the extra test time and get tested for Adderall. And I was always very against it as a kid Mm. and had never done so. So when I had this reaction to Adderall, I was like, oh, maybe I was wrong. Mm. And 
more than anything, I was desperate. I was literally, I was having days where I couldn't get out of bed, which was so opposite of me. I was homecoming queen, top of my class, had been student body, everything. This was not like my functioning level. Mm -hmm. And when I went home to walk in graduation, I got a proper diagnosis from my family doctor and she gave me a script. Because I grew up holistically and had never taken any drugs in my life, I wanted to make sure the diagnosis was correct. Right. So I took the time. I went to a comprehensive center in Ohio to get properly diagnosed with ADD. Wow. Um, which happens in the West. And, and I, when I did my diagnosis, they were like, oh, there's this weird thing with your working memory, but you absolutely have ADD. Go back to LA. Call us when you need help with adjusting your dosage. I went back to LA. Every month I would call and I would adjust my dosage and I was going up and up and up. And every month I would crash and I would oh. be able to like sleep on um, insane amounts of Adderall. Oh my gosh. And my mom was like, your personality's changing. I was having issues with all kinds of other things. And I was like, this medicine just isn't for me. Mm. I need to find a natural solution. In my search for the natural solution, I ended up getting tipped off to a place called the Drake Institute here in Los Angeles. And I went to get properly diagnosed again And to be taken off the Adderall because I heard that they used bio and neurofeedback to help people train their brain waves Mm. and help them get off the Adderall. Usually they did it with kids. I was, you know, in my early 20s at this point. Usually they do it with children. And so when I went to the Drake Institute, they did a brain map of my brain and they came back to me and they said, you have minute amounts of ADD, but so does Most of the population. Mm. It's an abnormality in your central cortex. We really don't know what it's for. It's kind of like your appendix. But we help people train that brainwave here. Mm. If you look at your brain map, you actually have your working memory currently operating at 85%, while the rest of your brain is in the top 3% IQ-wise of anyone, your ethnicity, gender, um, functionality, and your brain. So the Drake Institute was able to map this out for you. Yeah, they did. In your early 20s. Yeah, they did a brain map and they showed me the deficiency and they said, the only way that this happens within a human being is from either, it's called, it's APD, auditory processing disorder. And it is either from a ear infection or hitting your head when you're a kid. And what an auditory processing disorder is, it's a learning disability. And essentially your working memory is operating a little bit slower than the rest of your brain. And so unless I was hyper-focused or very stressed out, I actually missed consonants when people were speaking at me. So my dialogue of hands-on learning, learning from music actually had been because those were things that I was using as tools to stay hyper-focused. I couldn't learn from lectures. If you and I were in a heated argument and I wasn't hyper-focused, I was missing words. But because my brain, me specifically, I had such a high functionality in the rest of my brain, it was creating these minute traffic jams, but Mm. I was able to figure it out in real time as quickly as I was missing it. So it was just these slight delays that were creating built up stress and tension within me Mm -hmm. because I knew that this was a can, not an an. Mm. I wasn't hearing the C, but I knew the difference. So I would have this really quick and then realizing and then catch, but I was always kind of catching up and I had no idea. And he said, it's amazing you made it this far. Like 
it was going to catch up with you eventually because what happens when your brain has an imbalance in some way is that your body starts trying to control other things mm. to make up for the fact that it can't control or fix that brain Sure, wave. sure. And so if we look back at my life, I actually had had control issues mm. in every phase of my life growing up from when I was a kid all the way to when I was adult, but they had manifested in different ways throughout my time. When I was a kid, it was like, couldn't go to sleepovers without showering. I like, was very, like, I had to shower every night. Right. And then when I was, you know, in my preteens, it had been, my grades had dropped and, and it, it had been like, I needed to be the person who planned everything in our family, vacations, et cetera. Um, and they were like, oh, it's because of hormones. They got me some tutors. We were fine. I got into high school. Then my knee broke. So I missed that whole year. So when I was bad at languages, it was like, oh, it's okay. It's because she missed the whole freshman year of languages. Yeah. Her grades are okay and everything else. So we had just been making excuses and mm-hmm. not realizing there was an underlying problem. And so I got it fixed when I was 25. My ADP was fixed with um, a bio and neurofeedback at the Drake Institute. Okay. They weren't sure. Was it one of those where you're like listening to these um, kind of like programs where you're kind of connected with like certain things that are attached to your head. Yeah. So they had us, and this is usually a program they run for kids. They had mm-hmm. us basically, um, I would. they put sensors in that part of my brain and then I'd stare at a computer screen and I'd have to keep the object in the middle of the computer screen, mm-hmm. whatever the object was with my thoughts alone. And then the biofeedback was also, so that's a neurofeedback. The biofeedback was learning to not have all that stress and those mechanisms that I built around to keep that functionality. Right, the coping mechanisms. Because there were all kinds of things I was doing that I didn't realize. Mm. So you asked about what my grounding practice was or what that was that happened to me in LA that helped me keep my center and do north. And this diagnosis and having to quit my job that year, wow. the doctor said, we can help you, but because you're an adult, the neuroplasticity of your brain, we don't know how quickly or if it will pick this up because we usually treat kids. Mm. So you need to come in here every single day, five days a week, no vacations, no alcohol. I didn't do drugs, but like no drugs, no alcohol, no vac... Like we need you consistently because it's a muscle, it's your brain, and we're going to try to increase its plasticity. Sure. And so I quit my job. And I started treatment that next month. This is your management consulting job. You quit it. And it was supposed to be a year and a half. And my brain ended up picking it up in six months. And I had just been, like, I had been working in an agency on the weekends while I worked my management consultant job. I had been faking myself as my own manager. I'd gotten (laughs) myself on Entourage and, like, a whole bunch of TV shows. And so, for me, I had just started, like, cracking whatever that was that I was going to do in entertainment. And now I was being told that I'd take a year and a half off from yeah, anything. Just to focus on healing your brain. So you got to think about the mental journey for me. I had just graduated a year early, yeah. top of my class, 25 kids, full scholarship running at goals. Yep. And they were my peer group. I had moved out before any of them. I had made it to LA and I was trying to figure out something that was outside the box after being handed a lot of jobs that people would die for. Die for. Sure. So I already was taking that year gap to try to figure things out. Yeah. Even though I had a job, but I was, you know, right. I was figuring things out. And now I'm told, oh, you got to put all that on hold because your to health. focus on your health. 
And how was that time for you? Because anybody could think, oh my gosh, I've been going, 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 chasing all of the things and I've been getting every single one of those goals. But then you're given this diagnosis again of, okay, well, actually, no, we're not going to do that. Let's focus on your health. So this is where the grounding comes in, right? It wasn't a choice. I had to do it. I did not want to live in a space where, for me, it was not a choice where I had a deficiency. But I had to really look at my life and abstract myself from these ideologies around success that were so deep within me based on the character I just explained to you and who I was at that time. My entire life was built around by 25, by 26, by 27. Everyone was now in these top tier jobs. They were all starting to work their way. Everyone who I knew from my peer group worked their way up corporate ladders. I still didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, even though I'd been ahead of everyone. So much pressure. And now you're telling me that I have to take a year and a half off. I am so blessed that this happened to me because it allowed me to completely abstract myself from my own timeline. Mm -hmm. In order to kind of mentally cope, I had to stop. I had to stop thinking about what I do by 25, what I do by 26, what I would do by tomorrow, what I do by the end of the week, what my peers were doing when I would get, and this was actually never a dialogue for me, but when I would get married, when I would have kids, when I would find time, because I still had dreams, Mm -hmm. and this was not an option for me to sit out. And it was a very healthy experience for me because I got to sit with myself and get rid of those constructs. And these time constructs. And within that, I found my personal grounding because then my journey was no longer everybody else's journey. I was running everybody else's journey. My, My loving parents, my college, you know, teachers, my peer group, whatever you see on TV growing up that says what success is, whatever you hear from our Indian community, my American community, the colleges, the grad school, all the expectations and everything. I was running, you know, my life based on those expectations, Mm -hmm. but they were not my own. Right. And now I had this beautiful chance to actually decide what my own expectations were of myself and what I wanted out of life without the noise, because to listen to the noise would have been to drive myself crazy and and to probably give up in that moment. Absolutely. All right, fam. I just wanted to pop in and the holidays are here. And guess what? The official That Sucked Now What shop is open. I have the absolute perfect gift for you for the holidays. Grab my That Sucked Now What conversation cards. They are 44 prompts to help you build your resilience and bridge that connection. Maybe when seeing family or going deeper with friends or just building connection with yourself, or maybe it's a new love that you got acquainted with. And not to mention, you can get your hands on my super juicy 52 card deck affirmation cards. This is to use after those sucky moments, and it comes with action steps as well. And even your own That Suck Now What gold beautifully stamped journal to write out what happens after your suck or when you're actually in the suck or your personalized That Sucked Now What hats. They come in white. You've probably seen them on my website, on IG. You can definitely check out all the merch and more at thatsuckednowwhat.com 
forward slash shop. That is thatsucknowwhat.com forward slash shop and use Brave, B-R-A-V-E, to unlock your 12-month self-care calendar for free with your book bundle purchase. I'm so excited. So go ahead, check it out at thatsucknowwhat.com forward slash shop with checkout code BRAVE. And now back to the show. What I'm imagining you hear is kind of, you know, for anybody that's listening to this right now who thinks that they're on a time constraint or I need to be X in order to do Y or I need to be at this time married with kids or have my career all figured out. I mean, this is such a testament to almost pay attention to sometimes the red flags that might be underneath your nose. Like you had this diagnosis and proper training and a whole support system of grounding in an area, you know, in LA as a young artist who's just trying to get things situated. So then how was then, you know, I'm thinking of it as like your bridge and part two or even part three of your evolution of then getting the support, your grounding and being the launching pad for directing and filmmaking Yeah, I I wish I could tell you that that the next part was a straight line, but it wasn't. I think when you go through something like that, this was my second phase of losing my fear. And this was in this idea, you know, when I broke my knee, I had to start all over again with something very physical. Now I was starting all over again with a foundation Mm -hmm. and these tools and a career in terms of like taking an actual break. And then there was a lot of shame around that that I think society puts upon our parents, et cetera. There was a dialogue. Again, my parents are very loving of like, don't share that you took a break in your career. Don't mm-hmm. share that you had this diagnosis. Don't share these things. And so... Right. What will people think? Log kyakenge, you know? And yeah. by the way, full recovery, like my whole brain operates at that same high volatile speed now. So it's, it was... Top 3% of uh, you know, what, it IQ. A, <laughs> it was a deficiency that I was able to overcome, but there was still this like conversation of like even owning that deficiency. And so a lot of this next phase was on my own because, you know, for me, my world had suddenly changed. I was given this tool of a new foundation in terms of my ability to learn and my ability to to process the world and process my relationships. But, you know, what is the next step when you take a dead stop? And I would say the next step is just putting one foot in front of the other. Mm. And for me, it involved a, a walkabout in my career where I kind of you know, went back to Ohio because my parents were worried about me. And, you know, I had some friends. I I started doing strategy work again uh, with a company called Battery Creative for Gatorade, Crest Toothpaste. I was doing uh, other freelance work for them. I had some friends who were opening a bar restaurant nightclub group. They were like, you've done marketing for all these major brands. Would you come put sweat equity into this and we'll give you part ownership? And I was like, oh, I would like to own something. Everybody else I graduate with owns with something. That sounds good. But I really have always just somehow been drawn back to the storytelling. It's so innate with me. Mm -hmm. So even within this going back and starting to do brand work again, we had these restaurant nightlife group and we wanted to put more butts in the seat at the restaurant. And I was like, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll create a cooking show. I'll create a cooking show with all the best chefs in town. Like, how hard can it be? Like, I went to film school. I can figure this out. So I hosted it and I edited it and I got someone. It was like a two-man show. And doing that show 
then got the attention of Scripps. I started talking about maybe doing a show with them. It got the attention of a friend of mine who referred me to Fox Local. Mm -hmm. Fox Local was looking for someone to be their entertainment reporter, and they were like, oh, you produce. And I was like, yeah, I produce. And they were like, come do all our entertainment segments. So I was doing all the promos for Glee and for America's Next Top Model and America's Got Talent and everything on the radio, as well as the live television spots. Every time a band came in town, standing in front of the square with a... And I mean, the first day they put me on camera, I had no idea what I was doing. Oh my I goodness. just said, yeah, of course I know how to do it. I remember they put the earpiece in my ear. I was standing there. All of a sudden the band goes off. I can't hear anything. And I was like, and <laughs> I just like went for it. But I had learned by breaking my knee and going through this auditory issue, I learned that there was really nothing I couldn't do. Yeah. Well, and I want to speak to that a little bit because what I'm hearing in the through line of this conversation and for, you know, all of you watching us on YouTube and even listening to our conversation, you know, the through line, it seems like, what is your definition of fear? Because I don't sit with a lot of folks like you who is just like, all right, is, do you even have that fear filter or what's your process in that fear aspect that comes up when people are doing something for the first time? Yeah, I think, you know, again, it's about the energy and the value you put behind words. Fear is just a four-letter word. It's whatever you decide it to be. All these things live within us. They're not real. They're not realities. They're things that are born onto us because our parents experience, our friends experience, a story we once heard about a monster under our bed. Like that is fear. It is a an emotion within you. It's not an actual thing. It's what you give value to. And so, you know, this entire journey taught me to always... When you get death sentences like that, these end of the world, like your life's over type, you can't walk again, you got an, you got a learning disability in your 20s, you learn how to start seeing cups as half full, mm-hmm. not half empty. Because what's the choice? The choice is to crawl into a ball and just give up. And, you know, that's not an option unless you choose for it to be an option. It's a choice to choose to see the glass half full. It's a choice to choose to wake up and step towards your dreams, even if they seem like they're impossible. It's a choice to pick a path less traveled because you believe and you feel like there's no other way. And we have to educate kids today and the public that these are choices that we make, not things that are dictated upon us. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as you start thinking of a disease or an illness, or a deficiency, or a situation, or a paycheck as a sentence that is given to you and not just a thing that exists and how you react is the sentence that is given to you. You've gone from having power to giving that power to something else. But like only you have the power to decide what's good and bad what for you and what's good and bad in your universe. And it's really important, I think, that we educate a whole new generation of that. My walkabout basically ended with someone coming through Cincinnati and they had a company out in L.A. And they were like, looked at everything that I was doing. They were like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to be the ideas person. Mm. And they were like, we don't know what that means. But when you're ready, come out to L.A. And they had a marketing company. Oh, my I gosh. did film and TV. So I came back out to work. And the marketing company for film and television 
in Los Angeles. And when they decided, or when we ended up parting ways because they decided to move their offices, I ended up deciding, and I, I was sure of it, that I wanted to be a development producer. Wow. And so I went with all the naivety and gumption and fearlessness that you've heard me develop through this podcast into the two people I knew well enough to ask for a job. And I said, I want to be a development producer. And one was a friend of mine who worked for Michael Bay's company. And he said, oh, hon, you should have started 10 years ago in a mailroom. You can't become development producer. Wow. And the other was a good friend of mine who ran a production company back then. And he said something that, that exists in indie film because indie film, you kind of make and television, you make what you earn. And he said, you can come work with us, but uh, we can't pay you. And you got to bring us all the projects you can find and all the, all the capital you can find. We'll, we'll teach you. Wow. And I remember that when the friend who told me that I should have started a mailroom 10 years ago, mm-hmm. when he said that to me, it angered me so much because having been the person I was and gone through the journey, like that didn't exist. This Mm -hmm. idea that like there was something that wasn't possible. It was just about finding your way in. And for him to kind of like flippantly tell me that when he was supposed to be my friend, it really upset me. So I remember standing outside waiting for my car Mm. and I was like, okay, you got this, Adrusha. What is the one thing you know to be true about these industries, because you need to find a niche. Like if he's saying that there's no value or there's no way to become an insider by just like applying for a job, whatever that is, then there has to be a way for me to bring value to the people in my community so that I can get a foot in the door. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking back to my time at Saatchi and I was Mm. like, man, every company I've worked for post Saatchi and before there has been this conversation where the creative and the business don't speak the same language. Mm-hmm. I'm a creative who happened to go to business school. What if that's my path? Mm. And so I went back to the Film House New York, that team, and I said, I-, I would like to work for the money side. I want to work alongside them and then I'll come work with you. Yeah, I started working on the finance side of film and TV because it was the thing that terrified me the most. Yep. It was the thing I understood the least, but it was the one surefire way I knew that I could build a career, build a career where I would eventually have creative freedom. Everything else would be a crapshoot in terms of trying to earn my way in a creative field when we all know that art is subjective and there isn't really like, it it really is like kind of winning the lottery. It's not necessarily talent or who you know, or that rich grandpa who like always gets you in. It might get you a foot in the door, but at the end of the day, the people who make it in entertainment are really just the people who want it worse than anybody else and are willing to work for it. Mm. And one of the ways you can bolster yourself as an artist is to understand the business because there is no art without the business. There is, if your goal is to just make a film and put it on the world and not make money off of it, there's plenty of art without business. But if your goal is to make a theatrical film or a a television show that's on networks, Mm -hmm. then you have to understand the business and you have to be able to work backwards from that business to really get your creative freedom. It's such a testament to your bravery to not only understand, and by the way, I love all of the advice that you just shared because not only understand, okay, you need to have a niche, but even then to 
have and make the ask for so many people, that's the hardest thing is to put themselves out there because there's fear of rejection, because there's fear of, well, maybe they might not like what I have to say or I might get shut down. And for you to have the bravado to say, you know what, and be fearless and do it anyway. And so, I mean, this is so juicy and I know everyone's like wanting to know, well, where is she at now? Because this is like the cliffhanger. And so what projects are you investing in now and what's lighting you up now? Because there's, I feel like there's so many directions that I kind of want to take this conversation, but as we start to wrap up. I have to point out one thing though about what you just said. I was not fearless. Mm. I was fearless in that moment to ask for something I want. But I still then had another six years of my career where I was afraid that I had made the wrong bet on myself. And I always had a second job. I was producing, but I was doing this. I was making films, but I was doing this. And I had not gone all in on my own self-belief. And so very quickly, the third phase of my journey, the last like bit of losing fear happened when I was in a really bad car wreck in LA. Oh, wow. And someone fell asleep at the wheel and hit my car, flipped it down the highway. Oh my goodness. And we got pulled out of the car. It was like upside down on fire. And <sighs> I had a tear between my second and third vertebrae. Wow. And I had insurance. I had uninsured driver's insurance for someone else who was not insured, but it ended up in a massive legal battle between my insurance and this guy did not end up having insurance. And it ended up wiping me out financially when I had finally like got to a place where I was finally making something in my career. And I was for the last time in this place where I had to start over and I thought about quitting. I thought about quitting um, being a filmmaker. And I had this moment where I was looking for a new house and I came upon a bunch of kids and these Mm -hmm. kids were making $10,000 a month on a dropship business And I went home that day and I spent the next week and I watched every video on dropship businesses. And I knew by the end of the week that if all else failed, I could take a thousand dollars, move back to Ohio. I could be a millionaire by the end of the year and I could go make whatever film I wanted. And with that in place, and I share this with you, because I think it's incredibly important for people who are listening. For the first time, I bet on myself. And I put all my eggs into the basket of this unconventional career that I wanted. And I just gave myself three months to run through all the money that I had and to just do it and not do anything else. And it was within the first month and a half that I had my first big movie. Wow. And it was literally the one thing that had been holding me back from my career taking off had been this fear around the idea that I might not be able to make money on my passion. Mm -hmm. And I had been so scared that I'd been holding on to these security blankets. But it's true what they say about energy, that like you have to give your whole self to something to really see it elevate. And for all of you who are keeping one foot in a corporate job and trying to decide, there is no moment where you will have security enough to pursue your dreams. You have to want your dreams more than you want the security and trust the fact that the security will follow. You have to believe in yourself and that in the blinding way. And the result of that was during my time I was supporting Braun Studios, I was able to make and help make a bunch of film and TV. 
Um, I had worked for four companies before that. You can see it in my bio if you want. A lot of big names. Um, but this was, you know, finally when I started seeing really great money from my career. And I was able to take that money and start my own company um, right before the pandemic, Curiosity Entertainment. Amazing. It's called that because I was always a very curious child. And so my parents always said about me. And it's it, it's really where the nepotism of all our, or the core of all our stories come from. This idea around asking a question about a culture, about an environment, about something historical and why it is the way it is, and then exploring that and sharing it with everyone around us. So we have five TV shows and two movies right now that are part of our year. Our first TV show that goes into production in a couple months is the next show from the creator of Ozark, Mark Williams. Wow. Um, we do have a star for that, but I cannot tell you who it is yet. <laughs> it's being directed by Stephen Hopkins, who did Californication. Amazing. And Shameless, just to name a few. And we're just finishing the sale right now, so that announcement will be in the next couple weeks. And then we have a movie that Simon West is directing called Bright Art. He did all the Tomb Raiders. Mm. He did everything back to Con Aries and about 40 movies. I have a movie with wow. Anthony McCartan who did Theory of Everything, Darkest Hour, wow. and Bohemian Rhapsody. Nisha Ganatra is supposed to direct that. It's about a Muslim female who decides to be a comedian and is very timely with everything that's going on with Ron, this girl who just finds her voice and really stands up to her community to do something that she loves Amazing. and pursues something that is not traditional. But you'll find our stories are all vastly different. We have a Korean story that was written by the guys who did Umbrella Academy mm -hmm. and uh, a new Korean-American voice, Joe Price. We have a British story about a South Asian finding her identity that's very mm -hmm. succession meets um, Zoe's Incredible Playlist. That's a co-production with <sighs> Alcon Entertainment. Wow. And Nazrin Chowdhury, who did Fear of the Walking Dead. Mm -hmm. We've got a great piece by Kevin Fox that's based off of Deepak Chopra fictional series that he wrote in the 90s with Martin Greenberg. No way. Uh, and oh we have goodness. this amazing thriller that we're doing with Mark Williams and then a piece with Rob Weiss that is a retelling of Winston Churchill's spies that worked for him. And he, Rob, of course, did Entourage Ballers and so is told in this very modern vernacular two amazing female characters that helped win the war that were spies that we, we never heard about before. And wow. so we like to find these pockets of culture that can be mm -hmm. redefined through our storytelling for a new audience. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the curiosity is at the center of it all. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's so brilliant. And what a way to tie this conversation in such a bow. And I feel like, you know, for all of the creators that are listening, I think that, you know, you're giving people the permission to just be able to not just understand their energy and how, as you've been saying, kind of the through line of this conversation, the power behind their words, but not be afraid to go all in on creating that magic and see it flourish. And yeah, we're, and I, we're, re, we're cheering for you, love. Like, no, this is exciting. Sure. And I think if I were to leave everybody with everything, it's just like this idea around defining, you know, what it is that really drives you is so important. And defining it without the noise of the world around you. And so for me, when I got to that last phase of my career, I realized that I want to be an 80-year-old and still be able to tell a story. And I was actually re-signed to Wilhelmina, their acting division as talent, and I ended up quitting it because I wanted to, I wanted to own the stories. I wanted to be able to put my 100%, which I had learned in my last life lesson 
that when I put my 100% behind something, I was able to create magic. Wow. And just to give context, Wilhelmina is like the top talent agency. It is. And you said no to that. And so I want to give context for anybody who is thinking they have to keep holding on to certain things and holding on to the lowest hanging fruit. You can let go of that and you can see how the magic can really unfold. You can let go of it and you can, that redefinition was something you have to allow yourself and and for artists specifically, I think look at the world and how it's changed. You now as an artist can make more money than me as a filmmaker with a YouTube channel. And so define what success is to you. Like if your goal was to tell a story to the world, today is your day. This is your playground. There are a million ways that you can tell a story right now, tomorrow, starting with your camera or your iPhone, and you might end up monetizing that story to a greater amount than any filmmaker ever does in box office. If your goal is to tell a theatrical story or have a TV show on a network, then go and learn the business. But understand what your goal is first, because it is in redefining these parameters that we actually find freedom as artists. And so... What does it mean to be brave in this stage of life? I think being brave is believing in yourself. Mm. I think being brave is believing in yourself. That takes more bravery than anything in the world. And it's literally the center of all your decision-making and how you you, you view the world that you're a part of. So mm. uh, I think it's the bravest thing you can do and it's the greatest gift you can give yourself. And one word that describes the season of life. One word... That decide. Oh, I use a different word in what I filled out for you, but I think freedom. Mm. I think this for me, this season of life is about, you know, finally being able to be the artist that I always was and putting that unabashedly into the world for other people to experience and continuing to do it without definitions, allowing it to be, I'm going to direct next year. I'm working, um, I worked on music this year. Allow it to be about the storytelling process. My five-year-old self wanted to create a box where I could create with more freedom. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've done. And by the way, I love watching you on IG. And so (laughs) can can you let everybody know where we can watch and see and support you and support all the projects that you're putting out in the world? Yeah, of course. Hopefully I'll have my voice back next time you come. (laughs) You can find everything at Adrusha, A-D-H-R-U-C-I-A, Twitter, as well as Instagram and, and TikTok. I'll be restarting my TikTok. And you can find our company information at Curiosity Entertainment. It's Watch Curiosity on Twitter. And we're at www.curiosity-entertainment.com. Uh, amazing. Amazing. Wow. What a journey we have gone on today with you, the amazing storyteller, Adrusha. This was fascinating. And I know so many people got so many incredible gems. Thank you so much for your time, love. No, thank you for having me. Mm, this was so beautiful. Until next time on The Brave Table. Well, loves, that is it. It wraps up our 100 episodes. Thank you so much for being such a joy and pouring into this incredible community that we've built. If you love this episode, please find Adrusha on Instagram and go ahead and follow her. She's got these super cute TikToks. It's at Adrusha. It's A-D-H-R-U-C-I-A. 
her website for all of her projects, curiosity-entertainment.com. You might also love episode 90, how to build confidence and charisma through seasons of pivots, reinvention, and transition with Vanessa Van Edwards and the solo cast episode 86, how to find magic in the messy moments and fly forward past challenges or this beautiful episode with Danielle Gertner, taking ownership of your life, your shit, and your stories. And I am so, so excited to let you know that the shop is open for all of your That Sucked Now What gifts, swag from conversation cards, affirmation cards, all of the things that you would love to ring in the new year. We are also having an incredible challenge that is happening. And if you are curious at wanting to maybe challenge yourself next year and do something completely different and maybe throw out the idea of resolutions, because we know resolutions only last a couple of weeks, but what if, what if you are just brave to suck at something new? Well, if that's curious to you, then I invite you to my 10 days to suck at something new challenge. It starts on January the 2nd, and I cannot wait to jump in and get started fresh by committing to the suck together. Because one of the things about resiliency is being able to make fun of yourself and to embrace the joy in chaos and the grit and the grace that comes with change. And why not do it in a group where we all suck together? So it's happening. It's free. Go ahead. These 10 days are going to be about small, tiny action steps because I talk about something in my book, That Suck Now What, with good stress in good, tiny amounts of good stress every single day. So if you are excited, I would love for you to jump in. Join me as we embrace the suck together. So sign up for the free challenge at neethabushan.com. So that's N-E-E-T-A-B as in boy, H-U-S-H-A-N.com forward slash challenge. And I will see you and we start January 2nd. Now, I've loved this conversation and we are going to have so many amazing conversations in the new year. And to round us out, I would so love your five-star review If you haven't already, consider this your New Year's commitment. You can go ahead and rate us, review us, subscribe if you are new, if this is the first time. We would love it all and welcome to our community. And don't forget to be just a little bit more brave.